Uh, we are going to read um, from the Bible now. Uh, Josh will be coming and preaching later from uh, 1 Kings chapter 16 and 17. Uh, I'll read uh, the first part and then Crystal later on will come up and read uh, the second part uh, before Josh comes up. So if you'd like to open your Bibles, uh, we'll start reading uh, from 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. And I'll read from verse 29 through to 17, I believe, uh, verse 7. So 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, verse uh, 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel, to anger then all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, Elisha, Uh, the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead, uh, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kireth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kireth, uh, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. This is God's word. Okay, our next part of the Bible reading flows on from what Evan was reading in 1 Kings chapter 17. So that's 1 Kings chapter 17, starting from verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate in the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son 
that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the Lord... Uh, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and she did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms, carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even among the the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this life, that child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord is in your, in your mouth is truth. This is the word of God. Well, uh, you might uh, not be aware of this, uh, but uh, this week uh, here at church, we, had, we actually had a minor break-in. Uh, someone got inside the building early one morning when no one else was here, uh, and they tried to get into the offices in the foyer. Now, um, praise God, the, our alarm system did its job. Uh, the intruders left without taking anything. But I wonder, uh, I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that, a break-in perhaps at home. Now, I've, I've never had something like that myself, but uh, from what I understand, I think it's something that can certainly cause uh, or can be potentially quite... Uh, traumatizing. And not just because of the uh, initial uh, shock that someone's intruded upon uh, the space that is most personal to you, the, the space that you call home, the place you're, you're meant to be safe. But also, I, I suspect, because it can make you realize that you're not as secure as you perhaps thought you were. And security is a thing that we're, we all want in life, isn't it? It's something that we all long for, something we all uh, search for. It's why we have security systems on on buildings. It's why we have alarms on our cars. It's why we have uh, savings accounts and why we have passwords for those savings accounts. Uh, it's It's a reality of living in a world full of sin. But the question I want to ask you this morning is, where do you find true security I don't mean an alarm system. I mean, where's the place where you are truly secure, where nothing else in life can really get to you? Like, is there something or oh, somewhere like that for you? Now, I imagine if not, 
then that would definitely be something uh, worth having, wouldn't it? Well, in our passage this morning, as we keep working our way through uh, 1 Kings, this uh, series we've been going through, well, today's passage, we find an answer to that question. We find a source of true security. You won't find any alarm systems, though, in this text. No, it's all to do with Elijah's initial actions. And I say initial actions because uh, you may have picked this up, but with no introduction, no uh, notice, Elijah has just suddenly appeared in the book of 1 Kings. He's suddenly come to the fore like a thunderstorm suddenly rolling in. And at this point, we don't know anything about him. Up to this point, there hasn't been a word about him. Now suddenly he's here. Suddenly he's standing right there before the king of Israel. And he's making a pronouncement. What pronouncement is that? It's a curse. He's there to proclaim a curse. He says, there will be no dew and no rain at all for the next few years. Except, what is it? Verse 1, except by my word, says Elijah, who's there speaking for God. Now, why would he need to say this? Well, we we saw it earlier when we read uh, the last part of chapter 16, didn't we? Uh, The current king of Israel at this point in uh, Israel's history, a man named Ahab, he is the worst king yet. He's so bad, in fact, that he's described as doing more evil than all who were before him. That's chapter 16, verse 30. And no wonder God has come to pronounce a curse of judgment upon Israel. Uh, There's the king. The king's meant to lead the people to follow God. And here he is doing the exact opposite. Now, put yourself in Elijah's shoes. What kind of response do you think the king is going to give Elijah for telling him that the water's about to be turned off? Well, I bet Elijah wasn't feeling very secure at that moment. Well, actually, if you look at the text, we're not told. We're not told what sort of response the king gives because no sooner has Elijah suddenly appeared that he suddenly disappears and he's gone out, disappears out into the outback at God's command. There he spends some indefinite amount of time by a brook in the bush and God promises Get this, he promises to have him fed or to have ravens feed him in some sort of ancient version of Uber Eats. (laughs) And it seems he's fed pretty well. He gets two square meals a day with bread and meat for both. Now that's, if you're tracking with the whole Israelite story, the whole Old Testament, that's better than the Israelites got when they were in the wilderness, when God fed them with manna and quail. But yet, it's a strange situation that we read uh, Elijah being in here. It's really strange because of these ravens. Because again, if you know your Old Testament, you know ravens are what we'd call unclean animals. And the food that they're bringing in, right? They're bringing in meat. Well, let's just say it's probably not going to be a medium rare steak. Uh, More likely, it's going to be roadkill, which again would definitely not have fit into the clean category of Old Testament foods. It wouldn't have fit into our clean category either. But here's the thing. We're not given any comment about this. The author doesn't tell us anything about it. He just says, God promised that it would happen, and it happens. But it raises the question for us. Why go out there? Why does Elijah actually go out to the bush like that? Why not just continue hanging around town where there's much better sources of food to eat. You don't have to eat roadkill. 
Well, you might, maybe you're thinking, oh, Elijah's on the run, right? He's on the run. He's, he's just given an evil king bad news. Of course, you'd have to expect retribution. So let's get out of here. Let's seek some security. Actually, we need to look a little bit more closely to see what's going on. And, and it's context. As always, it's context that'll give us the clues. Now, given we've already heard that the king of Israel is wicked and evil, more so than any before him, it makes sense that what we see here with Elijah's movements isn't, as one Bible teacher puts it, it isn't God's witness protection program. No, what we're seeing is God making a pronouncement of judgment against Israel. And he does that not in the way you might expect, not with flashes of thunder, peals of lightning. But he does it by going silent, by moving his prophet, his, his mouthpiece, out into the wilderness. It would be a little like if we here at church uh, suddenly stopped sending out our weekly church email newsletter. Or if we suddenly stopped giving announcements. Or if we stopped giving sermons. Right? You'd know if you were here that, that something has gone badly wrong, if that's the case. Now, that's what's happening here. Something has gone badly wrong. And what is that? Well, it's that Israel, God's chosen people, have stopped listening to God. At the end of chapter 16 made this clear. Israel is more interested in listening to other gods. And so the true God goes silent. And he sends his spokesman away from the king, away from the people, in a sign of judgment. Now, this is a sign that you'll notice in other parts of the Bible. In fact, it's one picked up in the New Testament with Jesus. Uh, just have a look at the Gospel of Mark. Now, you can see this a number of times there where Jesus regularly leaves locations where religious people or others are against him. It's as if he's saying, you don't want to listen? Fine, I'll, I'll go. Now, that's the, the devastating reality of sin and judgment. If we... If we want to refuse to listen to God, if we stick our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 well, he won't force us to listen. He won't force us to listen to him. He just stops speaking. It's a little like the, the lifeguard that, that warns the person swimming in shark-infested waters that they're in mortal danger and warns them over and over and over, only to have that person steadfastly refuse to even acknowledge the warning. And so what does, what does the lifeguard do? Well, they, they head back to shore. Now, that's the terrifying nature of God's judgment in this passage. It's not that God says something we don't like. It's that he doesn't say anything at all and just leaves us in our sin and misery. But Elijah's story, it doesn't end there. Because after a while, the brook that he's been located at, that brook dries up. The drought uh, has full effect. And before we move on, it's actually worth uh, pausing for a moment to say that while it doesn't seem so right now, well, this is actually a, a big deal, the fact that the, the drought has come in full force. That actually says something important to us because it tells us that what we're seeing is a battle, a battle between Elijah's God and a local God. Now, how so? Well, this is where our, our historical context really helps. 
Okay, we know that from the end of chapter 16 that Ahab's been leading the people of Israel in following other gods. But did you notice, what god was it? Well, it's one god in particular, as it turns out, the pagan god Baal, one we uh, hear, hear about in other parts of Old Testament scripture. And the thing to know about Baal is that he is the storm god of the Canaanites. In other words, he's the one that they thought provided the rain. So here's God in the clearest terms saying, well, you want to see who controls the rain? Let me show you. And as you see, we're only seven verses in now. It's not much of a contest, is it? It's already clear. In fact, God won, Baal zero. But then as we keep reading, well, God sends Elijah off to a new location. About not, not though, back to Israel. He doesn't send him back to Israel, back to the king. In fact, he sends him out of Israel to a foreign land. He's sent to Sidon, which is on the, the west coast, right up against the Mediterranean Sea. And who does he uh, go there to, to see? Well, apparently some random widow. In fact, we don't even know this lady's name. We're not even told her name. But God promises that he will look after Elijah. And so off he goes. Now, if you caught the the initial uh, uh, conversation between Elijah and the widow, you might have done a double take as you read it. Remember that there's a drought going on, right? Not much water, the supplies are scarce. And for someone like a, a widow who has no husband to provide, it's likely that she's only just scraping by. But what does Elijah do? Well, he meets this widow and the first thing he says is, can I have some water? Now, the, 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 the widow graciously appears to comply. But then while she's off going to do that, he says, oh, can you also get me some bread too? Uh, she balks at this second request, telling him, well, she's about to go and prepare her last meal for herself and her son. That's how meager their supplies are at this point. But that doesn't stop Elijah, who says in verse 13, he says, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. Oh, come on, Elijah, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? How can you be so bold to ask that of a poor widow in the middle of a drought? Well, God makes another promise at this point. He promises to sustain her and her son and, and Elijah, even with the meager resources that they have on hand, just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. But God, that's not a problem. He can create miracles out of the meager. And that's exactly, in fact, what we see happening. This woman and her son, and now Elijah too, of course, they all feast on these apparent morsels for days, all the way until the rain returns. Again, some indefinite period of time. How is, how is that possible? How can this take place? Because like we read in, in verse 16, it was according to the word of the Lord. It happened just like God said it would happen. But even with this uh, surprising miracle, things are about to get a lot worse for Elijah. Because no sooner does it seem that things have kind of settled down then the widow's son suddenly dies. Now, it's not from lack of food, but from uh, contracting an illness. 
But unsurprisingly, well, this brings the widow's anger to bear against Elijah. She says in verse 18, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, this tells us something of what pagan gods were like or were known to be like in this day and age. She's effectively saying, you've brought this upon me because of my sin. That's why my son is dead. It tells us that the, the pagan gods must have been known for being vengeful beings. That's similar to the, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, who you might also know something about. Right? If you do the wrong thing, you step out of line, but they pay you back. In this case, the widow saying the payback is the taking of her own son's life. But is that a fair critique of Elijah's God? Is it a fair critique of our God? Well, let's see what happens next. Elijah takes the boy upstairs. He cries out to God for help. He pleads with God. He stretches himself over the boy three times, kind of symbolizing the request he's making to God that that the boy's body become like his, alive like his. And what happens? Well, look at verse 22. We read, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Now, this isn't a God who, who takes life in vengeance. This is a God who gives life. And here's God intervening in this specific situation. And it's not the, the king's son who has died. Uh, again, this is just some random pagan family who doesn't even live in Israel, completely unconnected to God's people. And yet the God of life intervenes with the very first resurrection that we have in the pages of scripture. It's God to Baal zero. Now, what are we meant to make of all this after a whirlwind tour through the text? Well, there's a couple of things we could say. But first, I think it's, it's important that we uh, take a moment to say something about how we're meant to read a passage like this. And we should say that. We should say something about this because, well, frankly, we, if you're like me, we have a tendency to insert ourselves into the story as the main character. That's what we do with other stories. And in this case, of course, that would be as Elijah. But it doesn't take long to realize actually reading the text that way won't work. Because let's be honest, we're not going to expect any time to be fed roadkill by ravens. So if this is not primarily then a story about Elijah, then what is it about? Well, actually, Elijah's name gives us the answer. Now, here's the the literal translation of his name. It's this. My God is Yahweh. That's what Elijah means. It's as if Elijah himself is a giant neon sign pointing us directly to God. And so that tells us it's God who is the main character, not just in this story, but in all the pages of Scripture. And so that means then that the question that we want to be asking ourselves is, 
what does this passage tell us, not about Elijah, but about Elijah's God? What does this tell us about God? And with that in mind, there's two things we can say. The first relates to our perception of God. Now, I imagine that if uh, we were in this time period, if we were in Israel while this uh, story was happening, if you were one of God's people, it might have looked like God wasn't doing anything. The the rain had stopped, so you're well into a drought by this stage. And there's been no word from God. The last word was from God was Elijah speaking to the king, but a lot of times passed now. So I imagine if we were there in Israel, we might have been uh, tempted to think God must be taking a holiday. But the details of this passage tell us that that couldn't be further from the truth. God is at work. Sure, it's with a foreign family in a foreign city, but he's at work nonetheless. And so the, the lesson, the first thing we can learn about God is God is always at work even if we can't see it. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, isn't it? Uh, here at church, if you've been part of our church for a while, you know many things happen in the same repeated ways over and over again. Every week we have a church service, just like we're doing this morning. We have our weekly Bible studies. We have our monthly prayer meetings, our seniors' morning teas. We get together and we have the same chats with one another. But let's not be lulled for a second into thinking that just because maybe on the surface nothing remarkable seems to be happening, that we haven't seen, for example, like waves of conversions or that our congregation hasn't doubled in size overnight. Well, let's not be fooled into thinking that means God isn't at work. Because what we see here is God is at work, even if we can't see it. And he often works, the way he often works, is in the ordinary things of life. I mean, he provided a handful of oil and a a bit of flour as a miracle in this passage. But that meager miracle for Elijah, for the widow, for her son, was the difference between life and death. That's all the difference in the world. So the things that we do here each week, well, they might seem to us at some points to be meager. Maybe they seem to be monotonous, maybe mundane. But what we're reading is God is at work in those things, even if we can't see it. Well, the second and final thing we can say is, what does this passage tell us about God? Well, it tells us something about his him and his word tells us something about God's word. And we see this not just in the, the regular references to the actual phrase, the, the word of the Lord, which is there four times in this one chapter. But even more, we see it in the opening and closing verses, the, the bookends of this passage. And verse one, Elijah is there with the king. He speaks God's word to the king. And then at the other end, in verse 24, the widow says, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. In other words, these bookends are here to show us what the whole passage is about. And that is, they're there to show us 
that God's word is promises to his people spoken by his messenger, they're true. They can be trusted. And that's important, right? Because later in the Bible story, we see another Elijah-like figure, a man named John the Baptist. He's described in very similar ways to Elijah. And his message is, what is it? It's look to Jesus, who, as it turns out, is God's most significant messenger anywhere in the pages of Scripture, because he is God in the flesh. He's God himself. That's who God's promises, in fact, have always been about, always been leading to. And so the question then is, do you trust what God has said? In other words, do you find your security in God's promises to us about Jesus? Now, it's easy to trust a word from someone when everything's going fine. Everything's going swimmingly. It's easy to trust things. But when things are difficult, well, that's when trusting God's word might be tough. That's when it might be a taxing thing for us. I mean, just look at Elijah, who had to cry out to God for the life of the boy. Or the, the widow, who has had to be willing to give up her very last meal. Now, trusting God and his word to us about Jesus, it may likewise be taxing for us. Uh, when times are tough. It might stretch us beyond what we're comfortable with. Trust in Christ that you're forgiven, even when you, you may have done something shameful, that might be tough. Trusting his word about uh, loving your neighbor, you know, that the one who is very difficult to love, that might be tough when it would be easier, on the other hand, just to avoid them. Or trusting God's promise that he's making all things work together for good or to make us more like Jesus. When really you look around you and all you see are the kids screaming, uh, failed relationships, financial pressures, increasing frailty and job insecurity. When When your circumstances are like that, it's harder to trust, isn't it? So how can I trust his word in the middle of difficulty? How can I find that that true security, not in the things of this world, but in the word about Christ? Well, here in this passage, God confirms his word. He supports his his word, his promises with miracles, doesn't he? He provides the ravens. He provides the extra flour and oil. He provides the, the life of the boy. How can we continue trusting, finding security in God's word today, in his promises? Well, it's a a resurrection. But not the resurrection of the boy, the resurrection of Christ. If there's one act in all of human history that confirms all that God has said to us in his word, it's Jesus coming back from the dead, having nailed our sins to the cross. Now, if God can do that, He can do anything, surely. He can sustain me through difficult circumstances. And and even if that's not his will, I have the security of knowing that death is not the end because it wasn't the end for Jesus. 
God can empower me by his spirit to love others who might be difficult to love. He can give me the strength to obey him each day, even though I still fight and wrestle with my sin. He can do that because of what he's done through Jesus. And so uh, I'll leave you with the only question worth asking. That is, will I trust him? Will I find my security in God's word to me about Christ? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, as we uh, search for security in this life, may we, uh, like we've been encouraged to by this passage this morning, may we find that security, not ultimately in the things of this world, as good as they may be, uh, rather help us to find the true security that comes from knowing Jesus, from knowing your promises to us in Christ that he has paid the penalty for our sins through his death and resurrection. May that give us the security in life to continue following Jesus faithfully, to continue trusting him throughout the difficulties that we might face, throughout the times that are taxing in life. May you remind us of your grace and empower us to continue living faithfully in response to what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.